Sappy Music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, October 25th, 2011. Mm -mm. Oh, man. Okay, I'm trying to make some final... (laughs) Which way do I want to go with this? Okay, yes, maybe, maybe yeah, <laughs> sorry, it's one of those programs where I have to make a final decision here. Thank you for tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Roseborough, I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we got to do the comparative work, and I got to warn you, this program is not politically correct. And it's not that we're purposely trying to step on toes. That's not it at all. It's just that uh, stepping on toes is, well, a necessary byproduct of truth telling. Because here's the deal when you say something is true, and you say, I believe this to be true, or I subscribe to this truth. What you're saying is is that everything that contradicts that truth is false. And, whoa, as soon as you do that, people are going to pounce on you. Oh, you are so arrogant. I can't believe it. How could you possibly? You bigot. You. See, that's what happens. You, you, You tell the truth. And, well, because people by nature are dead in trespasses and sins, they're they're likely going to riot and get upset. And, yeah, it's not that you're trying to upset them. It's just that you understand that that is one of the occupational hazards of truth-telling. Because when you say something with certainty or firmness or, you know, that you're confident about it, then what happens is, is that whatever you say, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example. I I will say, I am absolutely 100% confident that Jesus Christ is the one true God in human flesh, that he he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was uh, crucified, died, was buried, and raised again on the third day, and that there is salvation found in nobody except for him. You make that claim, and all of a sudden, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of people going, what, 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 what about... 
You know, what about my Buddhist neighbor? What about my Mormon, uh, my Mormon cousin? What about my unbelieving spouse? Yeah, you, you say you know, and 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 you, you say things like that, and it's going to upset people. Now, listen, you don't say things like that in order to upset people. You you say things like that in order to tell them the truth, to bring them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the idea. But understand that when you do that, yeah, it, things are not going to go so well for you. So here's the deal. This program, well, we step on toes. It's not because we're trying to. It's because that's, well, just an occupational hazard that goes along with the territory of truth-telling. So, and uh, yeah, we work from a particular set of presuppositions. I have no problem telling you what they are. Here's the idea. God's word, the Bible, it's true. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, he's the one true God in human flesh. He proved it by raising himself from the dead. There ain't no religious leader, nowhere, no how, that even comes close to having the, uh, the credentials of Jesus Christ. And if you were to take a look at the historical evidence, you go, yeah, uh, Jesus himself, yeah, Jesus not only was he a historical person, but all the evidence points to the fact that he claimed to be the one true God in human flesh, the God of Israel in human flesh, and actually proved the claim by coming back from the dead on the third day after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate there in uh, uh, roughly about 32, 33 AD in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so um, as a result of it, all the things that he claimed about himself to, you know, to being the Messiah, to uh, being the one true God in human flesh, that he can forgive sins, that all turns out to be true. What he said about the Old Testament being the word of God, the actual for real word of God, that turns out to be true, too. Uh, Jesus believed in a historical Adam and Eve. So, you know, you don't want to cross Jesus on that since he's got better street creds than you or I ever will. Um, you know, uh, you know he, Jesus believed that uh, Jonah was literally in the uh, belly of a big fish for three days. Uh, so we don't want to, you know, so that's, that happened. Jesus believed that Moses and the children of Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry land. Again, yeah, it'd be kind of foolish to go against Jesus on that. So we're going to go with Jesus, plain and simple. You know, the eyewitness testimony is pretty uh, airtight. And so here's the deal. He's going, well, Chris, you're basing this on historical evidence. Yeah, right. I'm looking outside of myself and I, rather than inside of my heart to determine whether or not this is true. Yeah, because here's the deal. I don't trust my heart. I don't trust my emotions. I don't trust my experiences. I've had some pretty crazy experiences in my life. I've experienced some pretty depressing, uh, well, feelings too. And I've had some pretty high highs emotionally. I've never taken any illegal substance, but uh, but the point is this: is that you know, in my life, I've had ups, I've had downs, I've had doubts, I've had certainty, and yeah. So I don't base any of what I believe on my feelings or my opinions because I just have kind of learned that my feelings and thoughts are, well, they're not, the well, they kind of shift and move. And so it's best not to, you know, hang my hat on those and said, I need something outside that is kind of firm and fixed that I can put my hat on. And that thing is Jesus. Actually, he's a person, not a thing, but you get what I'm saying here? So here's the idea. So this program works from the idea that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that what the apostles taught was true, that the Old Testament, because Jesus put a stamp of approval on it, the Old Testament as being the very word of God, that it also is truth-telling. It, it, tells, us, it tells us things about God, 
who he is. He's revealed really vital information about himself. But is it comprehensive? Well, no, not at all. But what it does say, what is revealed there is truth. And that when you say something that contradicts that, either what's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you're not telling the truth about God. You're lying. You are, um, you're not truth telling you're you're telling lies and believe me when i tell you there are folks out there who are they have no conscience none whatsoever they absolutely brazenly hijack the name of god and and wrap themselves up in pious language in order to well perform a con uh, they're um steal from you take your money uh, to make themselves wealthy or powerful or uh, uh, or a celebrity or whatever, and uh, and so here's the deal: is that I, I've seen that there's quite a big a rise in uh, that type of uh, preacher teacher out there, and so what we do is we just do the politically incorrect thing and say, you know, that guy says this about God. Let's test that. Let's see if that's what God's word really says. And over and over and over again, we've come to the realization there's a lot of people out there that are very popular in Christian circles who ain't telling you the truth. And they're not pointing you to Jesus Christ. They're pointing you to themselves. And um, as a result of it, the people who are really benefiting from what they're doing is, well, themselves. And um, you, not so much. No, because after taking your money, they... Their false doctrine actually sends you to hell. So, um, yeah, it's it's it doesn't work out well for the uh, believer in false doctrine like at all. And so since we believe that false doctrine and to, true doctrine has consequences that are eternal, that's why we go back to God's word, do the politically incorrect thing of comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God in order to hopefully open people's eyes to the fact that they're being schnookered. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there doing some spiritual schnookering, and so we um, we do the politically incorrect thing, not to upset people, understanding that it does upset people what we do, but ultimately the goal is to get you into your Bible and do some discernment work yourself. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got a few things I want to do here in the first hour. Number one, um, uh, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then one of the things you know that we did yesterday is that um, I had one of those those epiphany moments, and I thought, ah, you know, this will I think would make the point. And uh, that is, I put out a call for lyrics. What we did is, uh, what I did is, uh, said, here, here's the assignment. Um, I, we're going to change the the hymn "Amazing Grace." Uh, and uh, we're going to take all those lyrics away, and what we're going to do is I, I, I would like lyrics uh, that have to do with amazing grace, but it's the, the tune has been reworked to audacious faith. Uh, take uh, Stephen Furtick's false theology and put it to uh, to lyric uh, it, you know, it, in the form of a hymn that could be sung to amazing grace. So we're going to take a look at that. I've got a quick Harold Camping update. Um, there's something I want to point out regarding Matthew chapter 22. Y'all have heard those uh, preachers out there who who continue to make the claim that, hey, you know, when, when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, Jesus said the two most important commandments are love God and love your neighbor. Yeah, the problem is, is they're not telling you the whole story. As a result of it, they're kind of missing like the the um, the punchline to that particular story. So I want to show you that. Um, you know, I may or may not have time to get to this today. I've got a um, televangelist update. Talk about people's 
blaspheming God's name, taking God's name in vain in order to uh, you know basically line their pockets with money. Yeah, I've got uh, two examples of that I could share with you today. Um, uh, but uh, where I'm going to spend the bulk of the time in the first hour is uh, taking a look at uh, well, last week I promised you that uh, Albert Mueller was writing a piece in response to Carl Guyberson's Geiber, uh, uh, New York Times editorial. Uh, Guyberson wrote a, an article entitled Evangelical Rejection of Reason. I told you that uh, not to worry, Albert Mueller was on his six already and uh, was uh, locking and loading his, uh, his uh, missiles and was about to fire. Well, today the missiles got fired, and wow, uh, boy, it's... the. <laughs> So I'll do what I'll do is I'll read a portion, probably not all of uh, Guyberson's uh, New York Times editorial, and then I'm going to read uh, all of uh, Dr. Albert Mueller's response. And then in hour number two, we're going to be taking a look at a, a seeker-driven church plant that is really liberal, um, I, it, which kind of leads me to ask the question, is the next generation of seeker-driven churches this liberal? Uh, the name of the church is Urban Village Church in Chicago, uh, up there in Illinois. And uh, the sermon we're going to be reviewing was uh, preached by a guy by the name of Christian Kuhn. And it was preached right before the release of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. And the name of the sermon is Real Questions People Ask, Is There a Hell? Real Questions People Ask, Is There a Hell? And uh, wow, this is a theological, doctrinal, biblical train wreck. Seems to be our theme lately. We've got a lot of train wreckage going on. But uh, there's a particular reason why I want to review this sermon. So, uh, you know, that's what we're going to be doing in hour number two today. So with that, we got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, make yourself comfortable. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you uh, if you happen to have them, they do enhance your listener experience. And everybody knows that uh, your listener experience is really important to me. So with that, let's dive into the program proper. Here we go. That's right, that would be the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, which is kind of appropriate considering that uh, we're dealing with the uh, uh, pastoral rock star, um, Stephen Furtick. style there yeah all right all right let me uh, let me kill the music so uh, here's the idea is that um many times a lot of people seem to forget and as a result i think nowadays as a result of the fact we got so many 711 mysticism songs you know you know these are seven words repeated you know 11 times uh, you know mantra style as they, they these are the cheap substitutes for uh, worship music that uh, people have bought into nowadays. As a result of it, uh, a lot of the people in the younger generation have no clue that in in times past in Christianity, sound doctrine was many times, uh, oftentimes taught in hymns. And so the hymn Amazing Grace, as beautiful as it is, and we all know it, there's some deep theology there. So what I did is I put out a, a, a clarion call, if you would, a, a create a, a call for a creative um, endeavor, if you would, uh, you know, ha having people tap into their audacity. Uh, the goal of which was to uh, to really rewrite uh, 
this uh, time-honored hymn and rewrite it in such a way that, uh, well, we would um, uh, well, kind of get the gist of the theology of Stephen Furtick's Sun Stand Still, Audacious Me theology. And there were two uh, people who, in particular, who responded with such creativity that I wanted to honor their efforts by reading their uh, their their reworked uh, lyrics to the uh, hymn Amazing Grace uh, vis-a-vis audacious faith, and uh, we'll honor them here. And both of them, by the way, are named Matt. And so the first one uh, that I, I'm going to read the lyrics from two submissions that I thought just made the cut. Even my own lyrics didn't make the cut. I just was priming the pump with my contribution. But I, you know, I, I put out the call, and uh, two guys in particular, uh, Matt uh, from uh, Deltana, Florida, and another Matt from uh, Bismarck, North, North Dakota. Both of them uh, had rewrote uh, Amazing Grace uh, um, and put and basically poured into it um, Stephen Furtick's theology. So the first, uh, uh, the first is uh, uh, Matt from uh, Deltana, Florida. Matt, he- here's his reworking of Amazing Grace. Uh, Uh, with audacious faith here we go audacious faith is all you need this world you will transform just buy my book with utmost speed and read it every morn first place your bible on the shelf goodbye to wisdom wave then focus on the things you want and then speak the things that you crave then open to my pillaging your wallet and your purse or children wife or husband dear may suffer neath the curse When you've unlocked your destiny and Gnostic glory reached, no need of Christ or cross or creed or gospel to be preached. The sun will stand still before your words. The world will stand in awe. A glorious welcome you will find when entering Hades' maw. (laughs) Yeah, that was um, Matt's contribution and zinger there at the end here. Now, Here's another uh, reworking of Amazing Grace by uh, Matt in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. Matt's, his is entitled Audacious Prayer, and his lyrics go like this. O sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in Ajalon. For you, O Lord, shall do our will, your righteous children. The Lord will give all good to me. His will my prayer secures. He will obey and portion me. Audacious, I am sure. Though many visions were received, there is but only one that captures all our hopes and dreams. Stand still, bright, shining sun. No, this bold prayer shall never fail, though mortal shall cease. For we constrain our God above to do as we shall please. When we have stilled ten thousand suns, bright shining as my bends, We've no less purpose to fulfill than sins to make amends. Wow. <laughs> yeah, see, sometimes, sometimes you just need to put it to a hymn to convey the theology there. And uh, I would say both of these uh, reworkings of the hymn Amazing Grace uh, to to uh, fit the theology of Stephen Furtick's audacious Sun Stand Still prayers both of them, I think, accurately portray the false theology there, and both of them together make the point that what we're hearing from Stephen Furtick in his Sun Stand Still prayers and his claim to having audacious faith, this isn't the faith that's taught in uh, Scripture. This is not the Christian faith. This is the, uh, the um, well, faith of, well, the dreams 
and visions and delusions of uh, Stephen Furtick. Okay, moving along. I don't have music for this next segment. Um, in fact, um, let me. The fact. Let me do. Let me put the Harold Camping thing in here first. I'm not going to do a Harold Camping update. Music. Uh, we're done with Harold Camping. Just so you know, the it came across the Christian Post today in an exclusive story that Harold Camping has officially retired. He will no longer be teaching on Family Radio. Family Radio has taken down their doomsday prophecies for obvious reasons. They didn't come about. And uh, and so uh, Harold Camping's career is over. It's done. And uh, what the only thing left to do is to pray for him and for those who have been deceived by him. Because... The way forward is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the false teaching and false doctrine and false predictions and false prophecies and forgiveness of sins for what he's done. And the same goes for those who were deceived by him. They need to repent for believing these lies, for not trust, for not testing Harold Camping according to the scriptures and for being so foolish as to follow him and his prediction regarding the end of the world when Jesus Christ himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. So keep that in mind. Okay. Now this next segment, this is just a little bit of Bible teaching. And uh, and so if you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 45. Matthew 22, verses 34 through uh, 45. Now the reason why I want to do this, I want to point something out to you. And that is over and over and over again in these seeker-driven churches, you will hear sermons. I've heard so many of them, uh, you know, it's like I get a headache every every single time I hear another one. And I, I got to tell you, for every sermon that makes it on the air here at Fighting for the Faith that I review, six or seven of them don't. So as a result of it, you are spared you know, not having to hear all of the sermons that I hear. So just want to let you know that. But over and again, I hear seeker-driven guys uh, following the lead of guys like Rick Warren and others who take Matthew 22 and somehow they miss the punchline of the story. Okay, and I'll, I'll explain it to you, you know, using that metaphor here in a minute, but I'm going I'm to show you where they stop. Uh, so many people say, Jesus himself said that the two most important, uh, the two most important commandments are love God and love neighbor. But they're not telling you the whole story. Watch this. Matthew 22, uh, it, 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 you know, starting at verse 34, that snippet, that little story doesn't end until verse 45. I'll show you. Here we go. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. So this is that's the setup. So here you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees working together. Now, normally Pharisees and Sadducees, they are not guys that agree with each other but uh, since they're united in their um in their efforts against jesus politically they're making strange bedfellows here but here here we go so one of them a lawyer asked jesus a question in order to test him teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law and jesus said to them you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, what the seeker-driven guys do is they stop there, as if that's the whole story. See, 
Jesus said the two most important, the two greatest commandments are love God and love neighbor. So that's what we've got to do. And I, you'd be, I mean, actually, you probably wouldn't be surprised. There's a ton. I've lost count of how many seeker-driven churches have as their mission statement, we love God and love people. And what do they base it on? This. But the problem is this, is that that's only telling like half the story. Let me give you an example that I think you all will understand, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a joke, okay? And uh, see see what you think of this joke. <clears throat> there were 11 women uh, hanging onto a rope that was hanging down a cliff. Now, 10 of these women were blonde and there was one brunette. So they all decided that one person should let go of the rope because if they didn't, then the, lo- the, the rope would break and then every one of them would die. So no one could decide who should let go of the rope. So finally, the brunette thought to herself, you know, I'll go ahead and sacrifice myself. I'll let go of the rope. So after a really touching speech from the brunette uh, saying that she would let Isn't that a great joke? Did did you find that funny? Here, let me tell you another one. Here here we go. All right, so a sailor meets a pirate in a bar. And uh, talk talk turns about their adventures at sea. And and the sailor uh, notes that the pirate has a peg leg, a hook, and a patch eye. Or an eye patch. And so the uh, sailor asks, so so how'd you end up with a peg leg? And the pirate replied, well... We were in a storm at sea, and I and I was swept overboard into a school of sharks. Just as my men were pulling me out, well, a shark bit my leg off. And the, so the sailor said, wow, well, what about your hook? Well, replied, replied the pirate, well, we, when we were boarding an enemy ship and we were battling other sailors with swords, one of the enemy cut off my hand. Oh, that's incredible, said the sailor. So how did you get the... Isn't that a great joke? I did, did you just love that? I just, I just thought that's hilarious. Let me tell you one more. Okay, so here's another great joke. Okay, so a man was looking for a new caddy one day when his friend said, you know, I know a great caddy, but he's 90 years old. And But despite the fact that he's 90 years old, I got to tell you, this guy has like eagle vision. I mean, this guy could... He could actually count the dimples on a golf ball that's like three quarters of a mile away. And the guy said, well, really? Well, okay. So uh, the man said, well, tell him I'm playing again this, you know, in a week. And so the, a week passed, and so they were getting ready to play, and the golfer hit a perfect drive, and he's got his new 90-year-old caddy with him. And he said to the caddy, did you see where my golf ball went? And the caddy said, yes, I did. <laughs> Isn't that just a hilarious joke? It's just so funny. I, yeah, I, I knew that you like it. So there you go. I mean, a little comedy hour here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So I, I think you get the point. In each of the cases that I told the joke here, uh, the uh, well, the punchline got interrupted. It uh, well, it, you didn't get to hear it, so you didn't really get the whole story. You see, that's exactly what's going on when uh, these seeker-driven guys will take you to Matthew chapter twenty-two. And only tell you about the first and second commandments. That's really not Jesus' whole point. There's actually a punchline to the story. Let me read it to you. Watch this. So now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, the son of David. 
He said to them, Well, then how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Yeah, see, here's the deal. The lawyers, the Pharisees, and you know the teachers of the law—they spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out which was the greatest commandment. They asked Jesus, and he just goes, eh, "Here's one. Here's two. Yeah, everything hangs on these two. And they and they go, uh, oh, and, but see, then Jesus says, "No, no. Let me ask you a more important question." Jesus points them to Himself. You see, the scriptures are about Christ. You know, they're not about figuring out which is the greatest commandment. Because you're not saved by keeping the law. You're saved by faith and trust in Christ and what he's done for you. Jesus has kept the law perfectly for you, every one of them. And he calls you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The more important question is not asking which is the greatest commandment. That's like it's not even close to the most important question. The most important question is what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the punchline to the joke, but they don't tell you that. That's the punchline to the story, but they won't preach that. They stop at love God and love your neighbor, thinking that that's the point of the story. It's not. The point of the story here in Matthew 22 is Jesus. Whose son is he? That's the point of the story. That's the punchline. And all these guys who who want to specialize in the law and continue to say, well, Jesus said the two most important commandments are love God and love and love your neighbor are missing the whole point. Because the thing that shut the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law up was not Jesus being able to say which 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 commandment was the most important. The thing that shut them up was the question What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? And Jesus pointed them to himself, not their law-keeping, not their successful ability to order which laws are are the greatest or whatever. Because at this point, I'm sure there were were some of these Pharisees and Sadducees who were saying, okay, I bet you he's going to say this one is the most important or that one's the most important. So at the end of it, there were some people who lost those bets, right? But Jesus says it's not about that. Who cares if you got that right? Who's the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about him? And they couldn't answer him on that. Because Jesus points out the fact that the Messiah is the Lord of his father, David. How's that possible? The only way that's possible is if the Messiah, the Christ, is also God in human flesh. Jesus points them to him And that's the thing that silences them. But you don't hear them telling that part of the story, do you? That's the part that always gets left out. And not telling that part is like telling a joke without giving the punchline. What fun is that? All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You, you know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name, I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So, Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, beware of any pastor who thinks that the whole point of the Bible is to teach you how to love God and love others. That's the law. That's the thing that condemns you. You need good news, and that only comes through the gospel. I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see the two friendly yellow buttons that I constantly talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pick one of them and, and, and please support us. Uh, the uh, the one that says join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. The other one allows you to make a one-time contribution by and specify the amount that you would like to contribute. That's the donate button. Or if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can do so by uh, making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here we go. Moving along. Oh, oh she loves a monkey's uncle. Yeah, yeah. She loves a monkey's uncle. Whoa, whoa. She loves a monkey's uncle. And the monkey's uncle, they form me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves a monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves a monkey. I would have never made it in with one of the Beach Boys. He shines. The monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle, they for me. They for me. Uh-huh. She loves the monkey's uncle. Yeah, yeah. All right, none of that. So uh, last week uh, I uh, alluded to the fact that Carl <clears throat> uh, Guyberson of uh, Biologos fame had written a New York Times op-ed piece, and that uh, that uh, I had intercepted communication, if you would, uh, here at the uh, Pirate Christian Radio uh, uh, secret cave that we have. Uh, we have a pirate cave somewhere in the middle of, um, well, the Midwest in the United States. We're kind of landlocked, and it's kind of weird that a pirate cave would be landlocked the way ours is. But, you know, hey, just... <laughs> One of those things. Anyway, here at the uh, Pirate Cave, I've uh, I've got myself plugged into all of the, the latest state-of-the-art communications methods, uh, social networking, and things of that na- nature. And I intercepted a, a communique, if you would, from uh, Dr. Albert Muller from uh, a Southern Theological Seminary out there in Louisville, Kentucky, not too far here from Indianapolis. But uh, the, po- the point being is, is that uh, he made it perfectly clear that uh, he, he, he basically said, I got this one. <laughs> I got it. I'm working on it. And, well, he... 
published uh, his response today. So I waited. I decided to wait. Now, I'm going to read part of uh, Guyberson's <clears throat> rant, if you would, in the uh, in the New York Times. And the name of uh, Guyberson's op-ed piece was The Evangelical Rejection of Reason. Already I've got a problem. I mean, seriously, Carl, really? Um, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that I sent out a video today. A link to a video at the Uncommon Descent blog. Yeah, Uncommon Descent. And talking about how the uh, the evolutionary scientists have been talking about how uh, that there's supposedly in the fossil record all these transitional species of whales, that they have, have whale um, you know fossils that they found that go from a bear or a bear-like creature all the way to a whale. And, uh, well, this video does a fantastic job of demonstrating that uh, scientifically that's just not the case. And as soon as you push on the evidence, the whole thing comes crumbling down. So, yeah, I don't reject evolution because I reject reason. It's because God gave me a brain. And uh, when when I use my brain and apply it to the uh, to the evidence that's put forward regarding evolution, the whole thing comes crashing down over and over and over again. This is the case. But apparently Carl Geiberson has got us all, you know, if you reject evolution, then it's just because you've rejected reason. <clears throat> so <clears throat> here's Carl Geiberson. The Republican presidential field has become a showcase of evangelical anti-intellectualism. Herman Cain, Rick Perry, and Michelle Bachman deny that climate change is real and caused by humans. Mr. Perry and Mrs. Bachman dismiss evolution as an unproven theory. And two and the two candidates who espouse the greatest support for science, Mitt Romney and John M. Huntsman Jr., happen to be Mormons of faith regarded with mistrust by many Christians. The rejection of science seems to be a part of a politically monolithic red state fundamentalism textbook evidence of an unyielding ignorance on the part of the religious. As one fundamentalist slogan puts it, the Bible says that I believe it and so that settles it. But evangelical Christianity need not be defined by the simplistic theology, cultural isolationism, and stubborn anti-intellectualism that most of the Republican candidates have embraced. <clears throat> like other evangelicals, we accept the centrality of faith in Jesus Christ and look to the Bible as our sacred book, though we find it hard to recognize our religious tradition in the mainstream evangelical conversation. Evangelicalism at its best, seeks a biblically grounded expression of Christianity that is intellectually engaged, humble and forward-looking. In contrast, fundamentalism is literalistic, overconfident, and reactionary. Fundamentalism appeals to evangelicals who have become convinced that their country has been overrun by a vast secular conspiracy. Denial is the simplest and most attractive response to change. They have been scare, scarred by the elimination of prayer in schools, the removal of nativity scenes from public places, the increasing legitimacy of, of abortion and homosexuality, the persistence of pornography and drug abuse, and the acceptance of other religions and of atheism. In response, many evangelicals created what amounts to a, a parallel culture, nurtured by church, Sunday school, summer camps, and colleges, as well as publishing houses, broadcasting networks, music festivals, and counseling groups. Among evangelical leaders, Ken Ham, David Barton, and James Dobson have been particularly effective orchestrators and beneficiaries of this subculture. Mr. Ham, 
built his organization Answers in Genesis on the premise that biblical truth trumps all, all other knowledge. His creation museum in Petersburg, Kentucky, contrasts God's word, timeless and eternal, with the fleeting notions of human reason. This is how he knows that the earth is 10,000 years old, that humans and dinosaurs live together, and that women are subordinate to men. Evangelicals who disagree, like Francis S. Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, are excoriated by the group's website. In a recent blog post, Mr. Ham called us wolves in sheep's clothing, masquerading as Christians while secretly trying to destroy faith in the Bible. Mr. Barton heads an organization called Wall Biblos. By the way, <clears throat> I want everybody to know that I am not coming to the aid uh, or to the assistance of Mr. Barton. I have some serious, serious problems with Barton and wall builders, but that's for another thing. But <clears throat> we continue. Mr. Barton heads an organization called Wall Builders, dedicated to the proposition that the founders were evangelicals who intended America to be a Christian nation. He has emerged as a highly influential Republican leader, a favorite of Mr. Perry and Mrs. Bachman and members of the Tea Party, though his education consists of a BA in religious education from Oral Roberts University, and his scholarly blunders have drawn criticism from evangelical history historians like John Fee. By the way, he's, you know, <clears throat> David Barton. Yeah, scholarly blunders. Uh, there are a plenty. Anyway, Mr. Barton has seen his version of history reflected in everything from the Republican Party platform to the social science curriculum in, te in Texas. Well, Mr. Dobson, uh, through his group Focus on the Family, has insisted for decades that homosexuality is a choice and that gay people could pray away their unnatural and sinful orientation. A defender of spanking children and of traditional roles for the sexes, he has accused the American Psychological Association, which is 2000, disavowed a reparative therapy to cure homosexuality of caving to gay pressure. Charismatic leaders like these project a winsome personal testimony as brothers in Christ. Their audiences number in the tens of millions. They pepper their presentations with so many Bible verses that their messages appear to be straight out of Scripture. To many, they seem like prophets anointed by God. But in fact, their rejection of knowledge amounts to what the evangelical historian Mark A. Knoll in his 1994 book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, described as an intellectual disaster. He called on evangelicals to repent for their neglect of the mind, decrying the abandonment of the intellectual heritage of the Protestant Reformation. The scandal of the evangelical mind, he wrote, is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. There are signs of change within the evangelical world. Tensions have emerged between those who deny secular knowledge and those who have kept up with it and, and integrated it with their faith. Almost all evangelical colleges employ faculty members with degrees from major research universities, a conduit for knowledge from the larger world. We find students arriving on campus tired of the culture war approach to faith in which they were raised and more interested in promoting social justice than opposing gay marriage. Scholars like Dr. Collins and Mr. Nolan, publications like Books and Culture, Sojourners, and The Christian Century <coughs> offer an alternative to the self-anointed leaders. They recognize that the Bible does not condemn evolution and says nothing about gay marriage. They understand that Christian theology can incorporate Darwin's insights and flourish in a pluralistic 
society. I'm so near the end, I might as well finish. <clears throat> Americans have always trusted in God, and even today, atheism is little more than a quiet voice on the margins. Faith, working calmly in the lives of Americans from George Washington to Barack Obama, has motivated some of America's finest moments. But when the faith of so many Americans becomes an occasion to embrace discredited ridiculous and even dangerous ideas we must not be afraid to speak out even if it means criticizing fellow christians so there you go uh carl guyberson taking a shot basically saying evangelicals have rejected reason <clears throat> of course i'm going to give the last word to dr albert muller and his piece that was published today at albertmuller.com entitled total capitulation the evangelical surrender of truth Evangelical Christians will either stand up upon the authority and total truthfulness of the Bible, or we will inevitably, inevitably capitulate to the secular worldview, says Albert Muller. Here we go. <clears throat> Evangelical Christians are not surprised to find themselves analyzed and criticized within the pages of the secular press. After all, the truth claims that characterize authentic evangelicalism are increasingly seen as unusual and perhaps even dangerous by the secular mind. Nevertheless, evangelical readers of the New York Times recently found themselves taken a task by writers presenting themselves as fellow evangelicals. Uh, their essay reveals the central question that evangelicals must now answer. Do we really believe that the Bible is the word of God? In their opinion, uh, essay Carl Guyberson and his co-author Randall J. Stevens accuse evangelicals of simplistic theology, cultural isolationism, Stubborn anti-intellectualism, among other things, they point specifically to the rejection of evolution, which they call the rejection of science, and then refer to this as textbook evidence of an unyielding ignorance on the part of the religious. At times, the writers use the word fundamentalist and evangelical almost interchangeably. Following a line of argument popular among secular observers of conservative Protestantism, they explain that fundamentalism appeals to evangelicals who have been convinced that their country has been overrun by a vast secular conspiracy. In other words, they explain evangelical conviction in terms of psychology, not theology. Evangelicals, they argue, have been scarred by the elimination of prayer in schools, the removal of nativity scenes from public places, the increasing legitimacy of abortion and homosexuality, the persistence of pornography and drug abuse, and the acceptance of other religions and of atheism. In response to these developments, Guyberson and Stevens argue that evangelicals create a parallel culture which includes everything from church programs to summer camps, colleges, publishing houses, media networks, and more. There is truth in the description of an evangelical subculture, of course, but these authors surely know that this parallel culture emerged early in the 20th century, long before prayer was removed from public schools or any of the other developments they list had taken place. But then again, that honest admission would ruin the story that they're trying to tell. Guyberson is well known as a leading proponent of evolution, and he has launched several lines of attack against evangelicals who reject evolution. A former professor of physics at Eastern Nazarene College, uh, Guyberson has argued that evangelical theology would simply have to give way to evolutionary theory, going so far as to admit, quote, I'm happy to concede that science does indeed trump religious truth about the natural world. 
Stevens is an associate professor of history at Eastern Nazarene College. Together, Stevens and Guyverson have also written a new book, The Anointed Evangelical Truth in a Secular Age. The main thesis of the book is that evangelicals are following the wrong set of leaders, especially when it comes to intellectual matters. Uh, they level their attack on figures like James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, Ken Ham, founder of Answers in Genesis. And uh, their main accusation is that these leaders, along with others, simply embarrass evangelicalism before the watching world by refusing to accept what Guyberson and Stevens call secular knowledge. Dobson, for example is lambasted for arguing on behalf of reparative therapy for homosexuals seeking to change their sexual orientation. Guyberson and Stevens simply reject reparative therapy because the American Psychological Association disavowed it in 2000. Dobson, they accuse, charged that the APA did so under pressure from homosexual activists. Guyberson and Stevens failed to concede that the APA discussion was well known at the time to have indeed been driven by homosexual activists, who then claimed the decision was a victory for their activism. So far as they are concerned, rejecting, rejecting a position statement of a group like the American Psychological Association is tantamount to an irrational rejection of secular knowledge. What they fail to see, evidently, is that their own intellectual posture represents a total capitulation to whatever any secular authority may demand. Something deeper is going on here, of course, appearing on the October 20, 2011 edition of the National Public Radio Talk of the Nation program. Guyberson argued that homosexuality should not be much of a concern at all. He revealed even more of his approach to the Bible by asserting that, quote, there's just a handful of proof texts scattered throughout the Bible about homosexuality, adding, quote, Jesus said absolutely nothing about it. Uh, that hardly represents an honest or respectful approach to dealing with the Bible's comprehensive and consistent revelation concerning human sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular. Is Romans 1, for example, just a scattered proof text? Is not all of the Bible God's word? Well, Guyberson has already made his view of the Bible clear. It is simply trumped by science when describing the natural world. Again and again, Guyberson and Stevens point to the Bible as the issue. Evangelicals follow the wrong leaders, they assert, because they tend to trust those who, first and foremost, have an unquestioning belief in the literal truth of the Bible. Who would have known? Uh, Guyberson and Stevens reject those who believe the Bible's clear teachings on the sinfulness of homosexuality and prefer a figure like David Myers, who, quote, believes that Christians can be faithful to God, the Bible, and their tradition, and still believe that homosexuality is morally acceptable. On what authority? Well, once again, the norms of secular science trump everything else. Myers, they say, earned the Ph.D. from the University of Iowa. He has won several prestigious National Science Foundation grants and has edited respectful, uh, respected scientific journals. So they use language intended to both impress and to scare a secular readership. James Dobson, they sneer, believes in the use of corporal punishment by parents gasp and this defender of spanking children is dismissed as an authority on rearing children even though they have to admit that he also holds a phd from a respected institution <clears throat> the university of southern california taught on its faculty of pediatrics and has been published in respected scientific journals 
They reject Dobson on homosexuality and prefer the approach of Evangelicals Concerned, an activist group which argues that God does not judge men and women on the basis of race, gender, or sexual orientation. Oddly, Guyverson and Stevens criticize evangelical leaders who, for example, pepper their, pres uh, their presentations with so many Bible verses that their messages appear to be straight out of Scripture. Uh, do they seriously believe that evangelical Christians would pr should prefer leaders who would let the Bible be silent and base their arguments on some other authority? Clearly, this is exactly what they suggest. In their book, The Anointed, Guyverson and Stevens reveal more of their understanding of the Bible. Well, consider this passage. Quote, Christians have long been called people of the book. The label is especially appropriate for evangelicals. But the book is thousands of years old, written in obscure languages from a mysterious and incomprehensible time and place. <clears throat> End quote. Uh, that just about says it all. In a very important paragraph in their essay, the New York Times, Guyverson and Stevens write, quote, like other evangelicals, we accept the centrality of faith in Jesus and look to the Bible as our sacred book, though we find it hard to recognize our religious tradition in the mainstream evangelical conversation. Evangelicalism, at its best, seeks a biblically grounded expression of Christianity that is intellectually engaged, humble and forward-looking. In contrast, fundamentalism is literalistic, overconfident, and reactionary. Now, we know when Guyverson and Stevens speak of the Bible as our sacred book... <clears throat> They mean something far less than what evangelicals have historically believed, that the Bible is the very word of God. The most honest part of that paragraph is found where the writers admit that they find it hard to recognize our religious tradition in the mainstream evangelical conversation. Well, that's a huge admission. And one thing is especially telling. Guyverson and Stevens are far outside of the evangelical mainstream, and they know it. Even on the issue of evolution, Guyverson affirmed talk of the nation host Neil Conan's assertion that the rejection of evolutionary theory is, quote, the mainstream of evangelical thought. So uh, what are we to make of their essay in the New York Times? Did Guyverson and Stevens hope to shift the evangelical mainstream by means of their essay? Not likely. They've made their preference for secular knowledge and secular affirmation clear enough they could rest assured that the readership of the New York Times would overwhelmingly agree with their worldview and with their ass assessment of evangelical Christianity. That, we must assume, is their reward. They have, however, set the central issue before us. Evangelical Christians will either stand upon the authority and total truthfulness of the Bible or will inevitably, inevitably capitulate to the secular worldview. Guyverson and Stevens force us to see and to acknowledge the consequences of the evangelical surrender of truth. Excellent response by Dr. Muller. And I'm glad he avoided uh, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Barton and Wallbillers completely, because, yeah, 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 just trust me when I tell you, as, as, uh, as I have a minor in history, and um, I wouldn't go to Barton and Wallbillers for historical mm, anything, yeah. Just saying, you know, just somebody who studied you know, history. Anyway, um, we're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. <clears throat> I've uh, picked a um, church that uh, Carl Guyberson would feel very comfortable in attending. Yeah, let's just say that um, the folks at this church, well, they're like two peas in a pod. Um, they are, well, they're just like <laughs> Carl Guyberson. I'll explain here in a second. Here, here let's uh, cue up our sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Urban Village Church, Chicago, Illinois. This is a church that bills itself as bold inclusive and relevant they are a fairly recent church plant in fact I'm on their website right now and uh, you know if you want to be part of a group there um, they've got a group that um, is called the LGBTQ Faith Journey. Yeah, that's what it's called. In fact, let me read this for you. Um, the LGBTQ Faith Journey uh, Mondays um, and it started up again on September 26th. Here's what it says. Um, the gift and challenge of being LGBTQ and Christian. Regulars and newcomers welcome 
as we continue to explore the challenges and possibility of living a queer Christian life. We will engage with relevant texts, but will also benefit from the presence of guests, speakers, and spend some time thinking about how we might craft and share our own spiritual autobiographies. After group, we will continue to go out to dinner together for fellowship. So this is this group is met by uh, led by Matt Richards, is a Southern gentleman from Durham, North Carolina, who loves greasy food, politics, theology, the news, Steve Martin movies, energy efficient road trips, and men with manners. Mm-hmm. He's presently a graduate student at the University of Chicago, pursuing a master's degree in social work and divinity, and pursuing ordination in the United Church of Christ. Yeah, so. Carl Guyberson would feel right at home with this particular um, church. So the sermon I've picked is entitled, Real Questions People Ask, Is There a Hell? It's preached by uh, Christian Kuhn there at the Urban Village Church in Chicago, Illinois. I mean, we're uh, near the end of the music here. So, uh, anyway, let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Christian Kuhn. Now, this sermon is supposedly based on Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. That would be the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the reason I want you to hear this sermon, especially in light of the Carl Guyberson um, you know, and, and Mr. Stevens op-ed piece that Albert Muller picked apart rather rather wonderfully, is that this is the type of theology that emerges when you jettison confidence that the Bible is clearly the Word of God. You end up with, well, no ability to say anything with any kind of certainty and basically just a theology based upon, well, your opinions and speculations. You'll see what I'm saying. Here is Christian Kuhn. My name is Chris Kuhn. I'm one of the pastors here at Urban Village. It's a a joy to be with you here this morning. Um, This is the last sermon in the sermon series about uh, that we've called Real Questions and Exploring Different Things. Last week, um, I started talking about what happens when you die, and I want to continue talking about that uh, today. A few years ago, back in the mid-90s, my wife and I lived in Evanston, and I was going to grad school there, and my uh, mom came to visit us one weekend. And I know Northwestern football has been decent uh, in recent years. And back in the mid-90s, they were more than decent. They were really good. And they were selling a lot of tickets uh, as well. And so um, the day we decided to go to this game, we were walking to the stadium there on Central Avenue uh, in, in Evanston. And I was worried that it was going to sell out. Uh, and so on the way there, there were people outside the stadium selling tickets. Scalpers, you probably have seen people... Uh, selling tickets outside a a sporting event or a concert or whatever in the past. And so because I thought it might sell out, I thought, I better buy a ticket from one of these guys who are outside the stadium. So I did so. I bought these tickets from this guy, um, seemed like a reasonable price. And so we went into the stadium, and they weren't great seats, but they were okay. So we sat there, um, just kind of taking it all in. And then about 15 minutes later, um, these other three people came walking up the uh, steps and um, they said, "I think you're sitting in our seats." Um, and I said, "Oh, well." So we looked at our tickets, and um, sure enough, they both had the same uh, day and date, uh, the same uh, seats, same row. Everything was the same, except the tickets just looked a little different, ours and and theirs. 
uh, and the usher came up to find out what the issue was. And so he looked at our tickets, and then he turned to me, and he said, where did you get these tickets? And I panicked, and I lied. I said, a friend gave them to me. Uh, and he kind of looked at me a little strangely, and um, so we started talking, and then he said, well, why don't you go to the ticket office and kind of sort this out? So I went with my mom and, and my wife. We went down to the ticket office uh, and explained the whole situation to them. Um, and again, they asked, where did you get these tickets? So by this time, I was just like felt awful, and so I like, got on my knees and said, I bought them on the street from a scalper. And she said, you have counterfeit tickets. Uh, and this is the first time this had ever happened to me. And I bought people tickets uh, on the street before. It's the first time that it ever happened to me. Uh, and I just felt awful about it. But it was a lesson learned. When you want to go to something like this, there is one way in, one proper channel for you to get in to this event. And if you try to go another way, you might not get in. One way in. That's a big question. Whenever you talk about death, people often will ask the question, well, who's in? The big heaven and hell question. Who, who gets in and who doesn't get in? And it's a question sometimes that some churches don't really spend a lot of time on. More mainline churches sometimes kind of avoid the issue, whereas some more conservative churches love to talk about it a lot. And it stir, still stirs up a lot of even controversy. This week, um, there's an author and pastor named Rob Bell. Some of you may have heard of him before. He's pastor of a large church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's like a year. Okay, I'm going to point this out. Um, so far, um, I'm not sure where we're going here because uh, we start off with a story about his life, about having counterfeit tickets at a football game, and now we're talking about Rob Bell. If you're going to be answering the question, don't you think you've got to go to God's Word, where what God has revealed there? Younger than me, wildly successful, um, prolific author, and I'm insanely jealous of him. Uh, but that's another issue. Uh, but he also, you may have seen the NUMA video series that he um, has put out. But this week on YouTube, he put out a three-minute video that is publicizing a book that's coming out at the end of this month about this issue. I think the name of the book is Love Wins. And in this video, he kind of hints at having a theology that's much more uh, inclusive, perhaps, than more conservative people uh, might feel comfortable with. He doesn't say specifically where he comes out, but it, he kind of hints at it. And because of that, the internet just blew up uh, when people who were talking about this, and they're guessing at what Rob Bell is going to write about, and they were appalled by what he might be saying. And they were going back and forth on all this. And so it reminded me, there's still a lot of emotion for people about this question, who's in and who's not. So I want to look at this a little bit with you today. Before I do so, though, I want to let you know that I'm, for the most part, pretty much on the same page as Billy Graham. Now, this might surprise you because we have certain images when we hear the name Billy Graham, but he gave an interview to Newsweek about five years ago, uh, and he said this really interesting statement. So. Mike, if you could put this... Yeah, don't get excited. Watch what he does with this. You think, oh, well, he believes the same thing as Billy Graham. <laughs> Watch. Quote up there. I want to read this to you, what he said. When the, the journalist asked him about who's in, and Billy Graham said this. He said, those are decisions only the Lord will make. It would be foolish for me to speculate on who will be there in heaven and who won't. I don't want to speculate about that. 
I believe the love of God is absolute. He said he gave his son for the whole world, and I think he loves everybody regardless of what label they have. This is Billy Graham, which when I read this, it kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, but there are some things in here that ring true for me, one of which is not that we don't want to speculate on it, but I think what he means is it's not for I me. Mean, none of us knows. And so I start with that place. None of us really knows. Have any sense? We can guess, we can imagine, we can read scripture and try to get a sense of and all of these things, but none of us really knows. And people who say and will tell you definitively this is the way it is, I would be a little leery of, of those folks. So I want to be up here today, and hopefully every sermon that uh, Trey and I and others, when we come up here, we, we do so humbly, saying this is what we think and we pray about. We could be absolutely wrong. Uh, and so we encourage you to also talk back with us and push back. Um, again, after worship today, Tim Kim is leading a, a session. So what he's going to teach you is what he, where he's at right now, but he could be wrong. So he's not even sure if what he believes is right. And he, he's open to, you know, for you to push back. And so at this point, we're getting a sermon from a guy who really appears humble. But it's, this isn't humility or you know, humbleness. This is this is actually ridiculous. This is not what Christian pastors are called to do. Real talk. So if you want to keep talking about this issue, um, he'll be available for that um, after worship today. So. This is the things that I think, maybe, I'm not 100% sure, but maybe this is kind of where I am today. So I want to talk about some of those things with you this morning. Um, I've preached this sermon in the past, and when I have, I've typically tried to go through the litany of different ways that people can come out on this issue uh, and talked about. So there, And I've used language like there's uh, exclusivism or universalism or evangelical universalism. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ways. And whenever you talk about, well, I am this, and people will say, and here is my Bible verse that backs me up. So for folks who say um, um, perhaps a more narrow uh, way of looking at it, like only these people are, are in, um, they will say, use a verse like, for example, from, from John, and Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you may have heard that before. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. But then somebody else would, might say, well, I think a whole lot more people are in than you might think. And they would look at Romans. Romans 5.18 says, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness, that's Jesus, leads to justification and life for all. So no matter what stance different people might take, they can pluck out a verse from the Bible and say, here's where I am, therefore I am right. So that's why it's always yeah this is this is ridiculous okay first of all scripture interprets scripture and jesus was the one who taught the clearest regarding the afterlife and so just taking two verses out of context that went out of context appeared like they disagree with them each other doesn't solve the question the question is does god's word clearly clearly teach us anything regarding um, regarding the end, regarding sin, regarding punishment, regarding hell, anything like that? The answer is yes. Jesus actually, and God's word, teaches us quite a bit about it. It's so that there's really not any ambiguity at all, and I don't have to take passages out of context and then pit them against each other in their out-of-contextedness in order to come up 
uh, with the answer to this question. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Let's take a look at what Jesus taught regarding this, okay? So Jesus, by the way, one of the things that he did was he taught in parables. And um, Jesus' parables are not that easy to interpret at times. And at the time that he delivered them, uh, several of the parables that Jesus delivered, the disciples just like completely went over their head. And they weren't satisfied to let it just go right over their head. They actually went to Jesus and asked for Jesus to tell them what the parable meant. In this particular case, Jesus himself interprets his own parable. So um, what I'm going to give you is, is, in this passage, I'm going to give you, first of all, the parable. And then I'm going to give you Jesus' interpretation of the parable, not mine, his. And uh, see what you think. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 24, uh, Jesus put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so Jesus told this parable and the disciples went, huh? What did that mean? Okay, so verse 36. Okay, we kind of fast forward just a little bit in the chapter. So then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to Jesus saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, you'll notice what Jesus is doing is interpretation. So this isn't my interpretation. This isn't Matthew's interpretation. This is Jesus' interpretation of his own parable. Okay, So Jesus shows us that in the parable that, that there are characters that represent real things. So the character is, is the metaphor the real thing is the thing that that metaphor points us to or the word picture that that thing points us to. So the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Aha. So now we know this. The field, that's not really a field. It's the world. The good seed is the, are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Got it? Now the harvest is the close of the age. The reapers are angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is the teacher here. He interprets his own parable. His own parable makes it clear that um, universalism is not what will happen at the end of the age, uh, that there will be those who are gathered up 
and thrown into the fiery furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus later describes um, hell as the place of the eternal fire. You read Matthew 25 and the, the story of the sheep and the goats. You know, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus says to the goats. So Jesus is not a universalist. So however you're going to interpret Romans chapter 5, um, you can't properly understand that passage if you're going to pit it against this teaching that not all are saved, that there are those who will spend eternity in the fiery furnace. Got it? So uh, what uh, what Chris here is doing, Chris Kuhn is doing here, this is just ridiculous. This is postmodern gobbledygook. And it doesn't rightly handle nor weigh Jesus' own teaching. Now, the irony here is that this sermon is somehow supposed to be connected to the story of the rich man and Lazarus uh, found in uh, Luke chapter 16. So I think if you have your Bible, you might want to uh, fast forward to uh, Luke chapter 16. I'll be reading starting from verse 19. Here's what it says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered in sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. This would be known as Sheol in uh, in Old Testament thinking. So the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish and in flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Lazarus is in anguish here. Does that sound like a picture of hell to you? So he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus is pointing everybody to himself because he's the one who's going to rise from the dead. And even though he's risen from the dead, there are some who will persist in their sinful wickedness and they will not repent. Even if one comes to them, if someone, someone rises from the dead. Does this sound like uh, universalism to you? No, it, no, there's nothing in this that's consistent with universalism. So let's continue with this sermon. But, I mean, Chris here, I mean, he's I mean, this is just where he's at right now with his own faith journey. So, I mean, he's not even certain about his own beliefs at this point because he's so humble in his hermeneutic, you know. tricky to say, I believe this because the Bible says so. And someone with a, a, a belief that's 180 degrees from that might say, well, wait a minute. I believe this because the Bible says so. 
And so we get into this push and pull around that. So as I was reflecting on how I preached this in the past, I'm not sure it's the most helpful way for a sermon. I think it's important maybe for a class to kind of explore all those different viewpoints. But as I was thinking about it, I was struck by the passage that Crystal read from the Gospel of Luke. And in doing my kind of reflecting and reading, scholars would lift up this passage about this parable that Jesus read. Some scholars would say, it's not necessarily the best passage to use when talking about who's in and the afterlife. And I read that from two different scholars. And so I paused a bit and said, mm, I'm going to ignore that this week. Uh, because I do think that there's some helpful things for us to reflect on in looking at this issue. And when we look at this particular passage, this story, this parable that Jesus told, I think we see two things here. We see separation and we see surprise. We see separation, and we see surprise. Let me talk about surprise first. So we have this story. We see separation and surprise. I see one guy uh, in having eternal life and the other being eternally condemned. Jesus is, is telling this parable. And there are two individuals, two of the main characters. There's a rich man, and the way Jesus tells the story, we know a very rich man, fine linen, wears purple, which was a sign of wealth. Uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, ate sumptuously all the time. So he has a lot of stuff, rich man. And then there's Lazarus, not to be confused with the Lazarus that we read in the Gospel of John. This is probably a different man. But at the gates, poor, dogs licking his sores. So we have two different individuals. And it, when Jesus is telling the story, and the people are trying to get a sense of the afterlife and who's in, at this time, most people would think, well, Probably the rich man is in. Because people at that time thought, if you have many blessings, if you have lots of stuff, that means God really likes you. And if you don't have lots of stuff, if you're at the gates and you have nothing to eat, that means God probably has not blessed you. At the time, that's the way people thought. And thank God nobody thinks that today, right? He rolled his eyes, as he said. Um, because I think people still feel that way. If you have a lot of stuff, that means God loves you and blesses you. If you don't have a lot of stuff, then there's something wrong with you. You're not praying hard enough. You're not doing the right things. Now, he's correct. There are, there are people who think this way, and they're wrong. I think of the word faith movement and guys like Robert Morris, and to a lesser degree, but in the same camp, even Rick Warren. You've got to make yourself blessable by being obedient. And the blessings are all temporal. And then Jesus continues to tell the story and says, guess what? Surprise! It's the poor man. It's Lazarus who has the honored place with Abraham. And it's the man who has a lot of stuff who now is in a place a long way away from that blessed place. Jesus says, surprise, and turns the tables on this story. Yeah, but even in his surprise, the rich man realizes that uh, it's not too late for his brothers and they need to repent. And the interesting thing about Jesus is this. He surprises a whole lot as he tells stories. Oh, yeah. Jesus is a big surprise storyteller guy. Yeah. You may know the story of the prodigal son, the son who kind of tells his father to just forget you. I'm going to go off and spend all my stuff. And then as he comes back, most people thought, well, surely the father's going to reject him. And Jesus says, surprise, the father welcomes him and loves him. Later on in Matthew 25, there's a story of judgment. 
And people think they know who's going to be in and who's going to be judged. And it turns out it's going to be the ones who fed the hungry and the ones who clothed the naked. And the one No, that's not what Matthew 25 teaches. Over and over again, people's completely mishandled this text. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 25. I'm pulling it up on my computerized a Bible here, and you know, which is necessary to do as I'm teaching. But um, if you have your Bible, the, it's the story of the sheep and the goats. Again, I'll just—I won't read the whole thing here because uh, you know I've done this a gazillion times on the program. But it's important in this context to kind of correct this guy. So, uh, Matthew 25, verse 31: When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Notice the parallel here with the language that Jesus uses uh, in the story of the uh, the parable of the field and the weeds, okay? Talking about the coming at the end of the age. He's going to send his angels out, right? Okay? So he's going to gather up the wicked bundles, throw them into the fiery furnace. All of that, all of that stuff that he said in, in Matthew 13 is exactly what he says and adds to the story here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The judgment has already taken place. People are judged by what they are. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left. This is consistent also with the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. The people are separated by what they are. They are either weeds or they are wheat. They are bundled up and separated one from another by what they are. So the judgment has already taken place. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and was and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now this is not about social justice and the text itself makes that clear. Then the righteous will answer him saying, well, Lord, when do we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you a drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them truly i say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me jesus isn't talking about generic change the world social justice kind of stuff for instance simply digging a fresh water well in africa doesn't meet the qualifications here and by the way you're not saved by your works anyway Jesus is saying that the people that he wants to see fed, welcomed, uh, you know, uh, clothed, and things like that are his brothers. Those who are bringing the gospel message. You can think of the apostles here. And those in the church who've been appointed to preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. We're talking about Christian teachers. Right? And, of course, sheep are going to welcome and feed and take care of Christian teachers. That's what sheep do. So this isn't about social justice. 
But then it says, Jesus said to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Fiery furnace talk here. I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. So conversely, these are people who rejected those who brought the gospel. Mistreated them. Rather than welcome them, they turn them aside and turn them away, right? These are not, So Jesus' brothers are being poorly treated here, right? So Jesus said, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is what Jesus taught, okay? Jesus didn't speak ambiguously regarding the end and judgment. Jesus spoke clearly. And where he was speaking in parables, Jesus even offered interpretations of his parables so that there was no mistaking what it is that he was talking about. This is why the early Christian church clearly affirmed the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment. The church from the beginning has always taught this. It's not until recently that this has even been reopened as some kind of a question that we can somehow re-examine and reopen and take a, a, another look at. The church from its inception has believed, taught, and confessed that when Jesus returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead, that mankind will be separated into two groups, the righteous and the damned. The righteous are not righteous by their own works. They're righteous by faith because they are given and Christ's righteousness. It's imputed to them. The damned are those who refuse to be forgiven. Okay, Let me give you another passage that uh, comes to bear here. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, I'm going to start at verse 13. Paul's on one of his missionary journeys, and he, uh, and he comes to Pisidia, Antioch and Pisidia. And this, here he preaches one of the early Christian evangelistic sermons, if you would. And he does so in a synagogue. So Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Uh, heaven and hell, sin and, uh, and forgiveness and forgiveness of sins all come into play here. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem, that's John Mark, and they went from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he is promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? 
I am not he. No, but behold, after me is is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came, who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, quote, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this is Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if someone tells you. So as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now notice, in this proclamation, they proclaim Christ as crucified and raised from the dead, and that he fulfilled all the prophecies that were that are read every sun, or every sa- uh, Sabbath day there in the synagogue, right? So Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one promised to all the fathers, all the uh, the ch- fathers of Israel. He's the one of whom the prophets prophesied, and that he didn't see corruption, that he was executed, crucified, and that in him is the forgiveness of sins, right? So we've got a clear gospel message here, all of it linked to Jesus Christ being the one whom God promised, right? And Paul warns those who were listening to beware, lest what was spoken in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells you. Okay, Notice the connection there to Jesus' parable there in Luke uh, chapter 16. Okay? Abraham saying to to uh, to the rich man who's suffering in hell that uh, they have the law and the prophets and they wouldn't even believe even if someone comes to them from the dead. So here we got this. I mean, the, the parallel here is is clear. Verse forty two. 
So as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. We've read that, okay? And so they were urged to continue in the grace of God. Now, verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and what they were reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there you go. What is it that makes the difference between sheep and a goat? What is it that makes the difference between wheat and weeds? Answer? Well, here it is. One group believed. They believed the good news that in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, whom the prophets prophesied about, that in Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of their sins. They believed, and as a result of it, they welcomed Jesus' brothers, Paul and Barnabas, who brought them this message. They welcomed them and the message. Now, the ones who consider themselves unworthy of eternal life, rather than welcoming Jesus' brothers... Paul and Barnabas, they rejected them, scoffed at them, reviled them, and incited a riot against them, right? They thrust the good news, the gospel, aside and reviled the ones carrying the message. So here, Matthew 25 comes into play. You see the difference between how sheep behave and how goats behave. And the thing that makes the difference is faith and trust in Christ, the promised Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins. That's the thing that makes or breaks. And here Paul pronounces on those who refuse to repent, who refuse to believe. He pronounces on them that they, they've deemed themselves unworthy of eternal life. And that's true. We continue. Visited in prison. They're the ones who are in. Jesus is constantly surprising people with who he includes and the stories that he tells. And because of that, I think all of us probably will be very surprised when we talk about these issues of who's in and, and who's not. Because even if you admire Jesus, or if you call him Lord or Savior, however you feel about Jesus, this is one who constantly surprises us. And why should, in this question, should it be any different? This is one who is 
surprise her. But in this story, there is also separation. And this comes up to the question about, well, is there a hell or not? And we might think of certain people think, well, well, surely there's got to be some kind of hell, however you want to define that, for people who, who act unjustly in our world. We could come up with a laundry list of different people that we might fit in that category. This past week, um, I got a text from my wife. I was out of town, and I got an interesting text from my wife. I need to tell you a little bit about my wife. She is, like, volunteer extraordinaire. And one of the things that she's doing right now is she is a cookie mom. Uh, my daughter is in Girl Scouts. And uh, every uh, troop of Girl Scouts needs, when they sell the Girl Scout cookies, they need a mom or a parent uh, to be the one who coordinates all of that. Friends, that is a big job. Our house has so many Girl Scout cookies in it, you would not believe. Uh, but it's not just the Girl Scouts who are going and ringing the doorbells anymore. It's gone beyond them. It's online stuff. And they take boxes and boxes of cookies and go to grocery stores. And may maybe you've seen them. And they sit outside the grocery stores and hawk the cookies to people as they're walking into the grocery stores. And they're everywhere. And it takes a lot of time and coordination for her to do that. So this past week, they were at, I think, at a Dominic's, sitting outside selling their cookies. And um, my wife took the money that they um, had to the bank. And as she was giving this money to the teller, the teller stopped and said, you know that you have three counterfeit $20 bills in the midst of all of your money. And if there's not a hell for somebody who uses a counterfeit $20 bill to cheat the Girl Scouts, then I don't know, you know, what would there be? But we can think of other things, too. People who seemingly have done atrocious things in this life. And we think, surely, justice demands that there's something after this life. And again, we can only guess and speculate. But when I think about it, in this story that Jesus tells, it's interesting. There is separation. There's a chasm here. And... I've been influenced a little bit by some British theologians and including C.S. Lewis. You may know C.S. Lewis, the Narnia Chronicles. and He wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which was an interesting story. It's a novel, and he says this is fantasy, really. It's writing. But he, the way he writes it and talking about the afterlife, there is a bus that goes between heaven and hell. Uh, and essentially, people are, choose which way do they want to go. And it turns out that some people are unable to choose, choose heaven, because in this life, they have been so consumed by the things that they worship, that they're unable to focus. Yeah, okay, uh, here's the deal. Um, I, I find many of the things that C.S. Lewis has written to be fantastic. Um, but regardless of my thoughts regarding C.S. Lewis's writing, uh, the book The Great Divorce is not scripture. It's on purpose an allegory to make a point. And um, quoting C.S. Lewis as if he's an authority on heaven and hell, um, that doesn't make any sense. On anything else. There's a quote that I want to read 
um, if you could put up this other quote, Mike. This is from Tony Campolo, who's another writer and theologian. But he talks about C.S. Lewis and about what Lewis says in this book. So now we have Tony Campolo interpreting C.S. Lewis being told by uh, Chris Kuhn. Yeah, um, that's a limb I wouldn't want to get out on. That thing is going to snap pretty quick. And Campolo says this about Lewis. He says, if anyone asks how a loving God can send people to hell, Lewis answers that God doesn't. He says that people choose to go there because they do not want to give up the identities that they have forged with their egotism, wealth, power, and prestige. Their refusal to let go of such deceptive means for establishing who they are and instead establish their personhoods in submissive love to God is why they are not part of God's kingdom. The self-love that keeps them from loving God is the grounds for their lostness. I don't know if this is what happens, but it's... If you don't know if that's what happens, why are you preaching on it? What's the point of you telling us anything if, if, if after you tell us something, you go, well, I don't know if this is for sure what happens. I'm, I'm open to other ideas, but, you know, I just, you know, I'm not sure, but I just want to make sure that you know that I'm appropriately being postmodern and being ambiguous here and not asserting anything with any certainty. Yeah, this sounds nothing like the guys who hung out with Jesus, by the way. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, the Apostle John. The Apostle John. This is the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, that, at least that's how he's referred to. This is the guy who at the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, on the, uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, you know, he was the one who reclined and put his head on Jesus' chest. This is who we're talking about here. In his first epistle, uh, John says this in chapter 5. I'm going to pick up kind of halfway down the chapter, starting at verse 10, because verse 13 is the one that I want to get to, but I want to get this in context. It says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Yeah, the Apostle John didn't seem to be, um, well, he didn't, he doesn't, he's not exuding any kind of postmodern, uh, humble hermeneutic kind of thing here where he's embracing uncertainty and doubt. No, he says that he writes his epistle so that we may know that we already have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So whatever the Christian message is, um, it's supposed to create in you certainty of your eternal fate already. How can that be? Well, answer is pretty simple. If if the certainty of your eternal life rested upon your law keeping, well, then um, then you'd have no certainty because day daily you sin against God much. 
thought, word, and deed. But if your hope, if your certainty is on the fact that Jesus Christ lived God's law perfectly for you, and he suffered the penalty for your sins on the cross for you, that he was crucified for your sins, he was pierced for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities, and that God, that God's wrath has been propitiated by what Jesus has done, and that we're called to believe these promises that are being made, then we can be certain that we have eternal life, because our certainty doesn't rest upon us. Our certainty rests upon the one who has already fulfilled these things the one who has already done all this for us. So our salvation isn't based upon us, it's based upon Christ and the promises made to us through what he has done for us. That's why the Apostle Paul can write, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you already have, possess now eternal life. Maybe you're struggling with uncertainty as to whether or not you're saved. Maybe you're struggling with uncertainty as to whether or not you or whether or not you have eternal life or if you have eternal damnation. This says that you can know that you have eternal life. Why? Because it doesn't rest on you. It rests on him. That's why he says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has already been born of God. Got it? So here I don't see this postmodern uncertainty being exuded by uh, the apostles of Jesus. Like, far from it. We're exalted to have confidence that we already possess eternal life. And the only way we can be confident of that is if Christ has done all the work for us. And we're just called to, like children, believe. That's what faith is. We continue. ...to me here and now. Because it's a word to me about what am I worshiping? Where is my focus on the here and now? And I think this is a question that all of us can ask. And it's, I'm, I'm glad that both uh, Trey and Julie kind of, Trey talked a little about some of the idols uh, that we worship. And Julie talked about how sometimes... Uh, in, in our lives, we do all these things and we think it's, it's because I have done it. It's the things that, that I have done. And when I think about this chasm that this rich man finds himself at, and I think about the story that C.S. Lewis writes, I think about what is it that I worship? I mean, do I really worship and put all of my focus on God? Is that where I get my sense of who I am? Okay, now this is, this is a law question. Who do you worship? Because the law says you will have no other gods before me. So he's asking a good law question, but the answer should come back, well, uh, I don't always worship God. So he should be condemned by the law. Because I put my attention on the love of God, or do I do it somewhere else? And I think that's a question that all of us probably can ask. Where is it that you put your time? And where is it that you get your sense of self-worth? Where is it that you worship? Is it like the rich man, your, your wealth? And you're so focused on your bank account and the stuff that you accumulate, that's where it all is for you. Or maybe it's your job or your vocation. You're so focused on that and you almost worship what you do for a living. 
Or maybe you worship your status and where you stand among your peers and friends. Or maybe you worship power and maybe you worship even relationships. All of these things are not bad per se, but where is it that you put all your time and where is it that you get your- So it's not bad per se that you worship these other things. Yeah, right. Despite what the first commandment says, you will have no other gods before me. Sense of who you are as a child of God. And as I think about the things that I worship, I can come up with a pretty long list. One of the things I'll confess to you that I worship is Urban Village Church, which may sound a little odd to you. Well, that's a great confession. Uh, how are you going to deal with that being forgiven? You got any solutions there? But sometimes I get too wrapped up in trying to figure out, are we doing the right things with this church? How many people are here today? How come so-and-so isn't coming anymore? How are we doing on the offerings? How come you're talking like Captain Kirk? What are people saying about us? Are we going to be do this, that, and the other thing? And I become so wrapped up in this church that I worship the church. And God is saying, that's not the way it works. So even something good can become a place where we worship. And that causes separation, I think, between us. And you're not sure that it causes separation, but you think that it does. Okay. And God, because I think God continually calls out to us and said, come to me first. Come to me. So that's what you think. You think God calls out to us and says, come to me first. Huh. It's great that you think that. You got any passages? That, where has God revealed any of that? Huh. First. Love me first. Because that's where we get our true sense of being loved. No matter who we are or where we come from or how much we have faltered, if we come to God first, that separation we may feel goes away. Mm, so if you're, if you're feeling separation from God, if you're feeling separation from God, all you have to do is just love God first. And that feeling of separation will, um, will go away. Hmm. Yeah, um, let me read another passage, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice, in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice that all that is given to us by faith. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that would be you and me. For one scarcely would die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, you kind of get the idea here that um, uh, 
um, we're saved from the wrath of God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by, well, putting God first and loving him. See, because loving God is the demand of the law. That's the thing we don't do. And that's why we're sinners, because we don't, well, by nature, we don't love God. You get what I'm saying here? So, uh, well, let, let's continue. Let's see if we get anywhere with any confidence in this sermon. And we are so close to the loving embrace of God. What is it that you worship? Where do you put all of your time and energy? If we put it with God, first, all those other things seem to just go so much better. Our relationships, our jobs, what we do with our lives, all of those things. I don't know what will happen for those who worship other things. Will there be separation between them and God? I don't know. I don't think there is a hell where there are devils and pitchforks and people being tortured. But is there a place of separation because people have just chosen to worship other things? I don't, I don't know. But I do know that if we worship other things, that causes separation today. And we are called to make that separation go away if we put God first in our lives, which can be a challenge. Uh, no, actually, that's not how we do that, because you can't. You don't. Romans chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> those, uh, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind... Uh, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So uh, here's the problem is you're telling people that, Oh yeah, the reason why they're feeling separated from God is because yeah, they may be worshiping the wrong thing. Well, that's idolatry. And, And you're telling them that the solution then is just love God. But that's the very thing that Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says you can't do. Just love God. Um, no, we need, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Those are the ones who can know that they have eternal life. But sitting here telling me, just love God. Well, that's the law, and that's the thing that condemns me. And, um, Chris, you don't just love God, because you've already admitted that there's many things that you that you worship as idols in, in place of God. So this is not a solution. What would you do with, the, with Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins and trusting in that? But it's what God calls us to do. You know, when I was at that ticket office at Northwestern and I gave them the ticket and they said, this is a counterfeit ticket. And I felt awful. And I felt I have done a bad thing. And they did an interesting thing. The person said, just a minute. And they went to the back and they got three tickets and gave them to us. And they said, enjoy the game. They didn't have to do that. The money that we gave for these tickets didn't go to Northwestern. Yeah, that would be all grace there. They went to some person on the street. They could have easily said, you know, you'll know better next time. 
go through the proper channels, but they didn't. There was grace there in that very simple exchange. Mm-hmm. And they said, it's okay. Here are three more tickets. You're in. Surprise. And I think that's the God we believe in. You are so close, so close, and yet so far. You're right. The one God that exists is that gracious, merciful, and kind. That's why it says that Christ died for the ungodly. That's why we're called to repent and believe. That's how God's grace is, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, appropriated to us as individuals by faith. constantly surprises us with love and grace and if we can make that God first in our lives if we make that God first in our lives then he'll surprise us with love and grace that's to connect God's promises and love and grace to the law because the law is the thing that demands that we love God that's the thing that condemns us so this grace that you're, you, you, you are just kind of like tantalizing everybody with, you're taking it away from them by demanding that they first love God in order to get it. That's not grace. That's a wage. Everything else makes us so much closer to her and this God that we worship. Did he say her? <laughs> um... Hang on a second here. I've got to back this up. I, I, we'll play the last 30 seconds of this. I want to hear it in context. Did he say her? Hang on. And they said, it's okay. Here are three more tickets. You're in. Surprise. And I think that's the God we believe in. Who constantly surprises us with love and grace. And if we can make that God first in our lives. Everything else makes us so much closer to her. Yep. He said her. So if we can love God, then we can be closer to her. Uh, yeah. Um, so there you have it. Um, I'm officially disturbed. But Carl Guyberson would be right at home in this church, and uh, this church is one of the latest and greatest seeker-driven churches that's out there advertising, telling everybody that they're bold, they're inclusive, and they're relevant. Um, but um, at the end of the day, they leave you unable to believe anything with any certainty. But he did at the end make it clear that he believed that God is a her. So not sure which God he believes in, but definitely not the God of the Bible. But she, whoever she is, is very gracious. And she didn't die for for your sins on the cross, uh, but uh, there you go. So um, yeah, I'm officially creeped out. I'm going to have to go floss my brain uh, with some kind of cleaning agent after that. Um, wow, what a mess. So, yeah, we'll put them in our regular rotation because what I'm noticing is is that a lot of the newer church plants um, have this postmodern emergent liberal thing going on. 
And uh, these are the these are the types of churches that, um, well, have uh, you know are learning how to do their methodologies uh, from the uh, the Rick Warrens, the Bill Hybels, and the leadership networks, uh, but learning their theology from the Brian McLarens and the Tony Campolos and the liberals. So um, yeah, frightening, frightening mix. Pray for the people there because they're not hearing the biblical gospel. And they're not being called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins by our gracious and loving Savior, who happens to be a dude because well, he was circumcised. Do you get what I'm saying? Anyway, all right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder: we're listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website. And uh, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.